Public art is important because it has the power to shape history. Lava Thomas. History is dependent on how it is documented, and of course, determined by who is doing the documenting. Through various forms, including literature, oral traditions, monuments, and art, current and future generations are able to have context of the past to help shape the future. Lava Thomas is a multidisciplinary artist whose practice centers on ideas that amplify visibility, healing, and empowerment in the face of erasure, trauma, and oppression. She draws from her family's southern roots, as well as current and historical socio-political events, intersectional feminism, and African-American protest and devotional traditions. Well, I adore you and I'm a big fan of yours and I've loved your work for years. Um, and so let's start at the beginning. When did you know you were an artist and, and where did it all start for you? You know, I've always been an artist. I was the kid who was always drawing. I was the kid who played the piano and I was, the, I was a bookish kid as well. So you would find me in a corner with a book always. Um, I didn't quite understand what a professional artist did, of course, as a young child, but I had a facility for drawing and I received a lot of positive feedback for it. When I was growing up, my grandmother had a beauty shop and she received Highlights Magazine for children. And Highlights Magazine would always have um, an art section, which was, it was an educational section. So one of my memories, and this is a profound memory of seeing a piece of art in a magazine and really connecting to it was seeing Las Meninas by Velasquez, which is, if you know that piece, it is a beautiful painting of Spanish princesses with these gorgeous gowns. Uh, there's a dog in the foreground and there um, is also, there's a mirror and Velasquez painted himself within that painting. So I really connected to the outfits, right? <laughs> Uh, during that time, I was a flower girl in a wedding. And so I was being fitted for this beautiful gown. And so I immediately uh, related to the painting. And then when I read that the painter painted himself in it, I began to understand this idea of authorship. I began to understand what an artist could do. And the painting is from the 1600s. So I also began to understand the permanence of art. I grew up in Los Angeles and my family was a client of Golden State Mutual Insurance Company. And that is one of the, was one of the largest black owned insurance companies in the country. And their headquarters was within walking distance of our house. And during that time, an individual salesman or agent would come to the house to collect the premiums. And during that time, Charles White was commissioned to create the calendar for Golden State um, Mutual Insurance Company. And I remember receiving the calendar and seeing these beautiful charcoal drawings of people that looked like my family. 
And so that was another experience as a child that reinforced an idea of what an artist could be. So let's fast forward, I'm in college, I'm studying fine art, and I was an intern at the Getty uh, Museum, and I interned in their antiquities conservation program. And it was a program to train studio artists to go into the profession of conservation. And I was very taken with that idea because I didn't quite know how artists made their money. <laughs> and then there was always this myth around the starving artist, and that was not a future that I wanted to sign up for. So I was seriously considering going into the conservation field. At the time that I was an intern at the Getty, Carrie Mae Weems had an exhibition of photographs. From here, I saw what happened and I cried. And that's the title? That's the title. Oh, how beautiful. Wow. And it was an exhibition of photographs of slaves that she um, sourced from various archives. And that work was so incredibly powerful. And I spent every day of my internship with that work. And by the end of the internship, I had fully committed myself to uh, continuing my training as an artist and aspiring to create work that was as powerful as the work in front of me. I really had to question um, how I wanted to spend my time as, a, as an artist, as a professional, but also as a Black woman. So in terms of conservation, the question, did I want to spend my time cleaning and conserving objects that in many ways were wrapped up in my own oppression? Or did I want to spend my time and talent, energy, labor, creating work that would really speak to my freedom? So I chose the latter. Amen. It's a blessing that you did. There's something very serendipitous about that story where, you know, I'm sure there's money involved in the museum there, you know, that's a great job to have, but the world needs your art. I mean, the world needs you to be creating and we need your vision. Does Carrie Mae Weems know this story? Yes, she does. And I had an opportunity to, to share the story with her and to thank her for her inspiration. This was several, several years ago, yes. I mean, how powerful and serendipitous. It's a great job and it's a great path to go into museum conservation, but there are bigger things for you and the world needs you to create. And, you know, I love hearing that, like that, that fork in the road, that pivotal moment where you're making these decisions. Um, and I'm so glad you chose the later of, the, of those choices. <laughs> because the work you've done since, you know, has, has probably inspired others to make the same choice. I hope so. Absolutely. I mean, that's one of those things in, in process of once you release a piece, uh, you don't really know the ripple effects. You don't know how you're inspiring others. You know, it's really true. The work lives in the studio with me for a long time before it's released out into the world. And I don't really think very much of the public while I'm creating the work. I do think a lot about the ideas that I want the work to convey. I think about my own engagement with the work and what I'm learning from the work. But when the work leaves the studio and it goes out into the world to be exhibited, it has a life of its own and it 
affects people in ways that I can't even imagine. And everyone brings their own lived experience to the work, their own body of knowledge to the work, which informs the work. So even though the work lives in the studio, I'm creating the work, the work is evolving and it's myself or perhaps an assistant that's helping me. When it goes out into the work, it's full meaning is then revealed because it really does require a viewer to complete it. It's so beautiful. At what point do you know it's finished? At what point do you know that it's just needing that other piece? That's really difficult to say because each project is different and each project provides a different set of experiences. I work intuitively, oftentimes when I'm dealing with the aesthetics portion of the work, when I'm dealing with concepts and ideas, there are many things that go into it. Uh, The work is dependent on research. I can't really articulate when I know the work is completed. If the work isn't finished, there's always this nagging sort of, let me just put it this way, okay? I'm going to compare this to um, my, uh, early education and taking math as a child, right? There's this feeling of completion and gratification, checking a math problem and knowing that it's right. Okay. Um, I have that feeling when I know that a feeling is, when I know that a work is done, when it's completed, there's this feeling of satisfaction. There's this feeling of gratification. There's this inner knowledge that, okay, the work is now ready to go out into the world. And sometimes that doesn't happen for a very long time. There have been works of mine that I have just lived with not knowing exactly what else it needs. And it sort of sits in the studio. I'm thinking about it. And sometimes I haven't read the book that I need to read in order to create that final piece before it goes out into the world. I haven't seen the thing that I need to see in order to shape this work in the way that it needs to be shaped before it goes out into the world. I'm very conscious and intentional with the work and really listening to that inner voice. Sometimes that's difficult when I have to meet deadlines, but fortunately up until this point, I've always managed to meet them and uh, release work out of the studio that I feel is finished. Has there ever been a piece that you were worried that was not finished that you had to release? It sort of gives me anxiety. No, no, because it, the work is not to my satisfaction if it doesn't pass the muster. It doesn't leave the studio. It just doesn't. I can't release work that I'm not proud of. You're truly an artist because it's all intuition. I mean, it's really hard to put words to what it is to know, to feel satisfied, to know you like the aesthetics, to know, because it's so individual to you as the artist. Yes. And to everyone else, it's subjective. Well, and it's, you're creating something out of nothing. And so it's easy for people to come once you've built something to comment on it. Um, but when you're looking at a blank slate and, you know, you just have a concept, um, you're, you know, you're creating. I mean, it's, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing. Where do the ideas come from? So we talked about when it's finished, when does it start or where, what does your process look like? 
my process is different with each project. And oftentimes there's something that happens that is a catalyst for the work to be made. For example, with Requiem for Charleston, which is a memorial to the nine men and women who were massacred in um, Mother Emanuel Church in South Carolina, there was that heinous act of racial violence um, committed against innocent women and men who were attending a Bible study. And that affected me deeply. I, it, that affected me profoundly. And so I created Requiem for Charleston in response to that. Mugshot Portraits, Women of the Montgomery Bus Boycott, which is a project that commemorates the under-acknowledged leadership and activism of the women who initiated and organized the Montgomery Bus Boycott. That body of work came out of the racial hatred and misogyny that I saw coming out of the Trump administration and prior to that, Trump's presidential campaign, and really thinking about how the hard-won civil rights laws and protections were being methodically eroded, and thinking about the actions of everyday women, everyday women who motivated their communities to participate in this mass act of resistance that was foundational to the civil rights movements. It was important for me to look at the everyday actions of women who were the catalyst for this huge mass act of resistance, which was pivotal to the civil rights movement. And do you consider yourself a storyteller? Is your goal to build awareness, to honor, to, you know, when you go into it, what is the your relationship, I guess, with the peace in the end? What is your intent? That's a really good question. I am a storyteller because I am excavating these stories and histories that are not generally well known. With the women of the Montgomery bus boycott, when I first began that project, the biographies of those women were not available to me. And when you think of the civil rights movement, you primarily think about Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King's leadership. You think about Rosa Parks, but you don't think about the unsung women who were foundational to the movement. So during my research, I was looking for the stories of their lives. And since I was creating portraits um, and then looking back at the history of portraiture, when you think about the representation of Black people within that history, oftentimes we're anonymous. Oftentimes we are there as a foil for the person who is actually uh, commissioning the portrait and we are portrayed in positions of servitude or uh, subjection. So I wanted to transform the mugshot, which is a photograph that's designed to dehumanize and decriminalize. I wanted to transform that into commemorative portraiture. And if I could include as much biographical information as I could, but like I said, that information wasn't available. And it's only now that some of those stories are being uncovered. So in that case, 
Uh, my goal was to expand the history of the civil rights movement to include the important contributions of black women. So that when we think about the history of the civil rights movement, we're not just valorizing its heroes, but we're thinking of it in a more expansive way, in a more inclusive way, and in a way that honors black women. You are wonderful. Absolutely. I mean, it couldn't be more important. And it's, you know, as a visual learner, looking at your mugshots, I've learned so much more than I would out of a book. You know, artists have a different language and it's it's really important. I mean, I feel like those portraits really are empowering. And in the context of these women stood up for what they believe in, it's, it's an inspirational piece. You know, you really did take the mugshot and flip it on its head because you look at them and you're like, right on, you know, you fought for the right, you're on the right side of history. You fought for what you believe in. You risked your life for the, the humanity of others. And, and you tell that story. I mean, that's through your art that I feel that way, that I've picked that up, that I've learned about these. That means that the work is doing its job. It's wonderful. And how many people have seen that work and the ripple effects, you know, if you, if you can change perspective, if you can break stereotypes through art, I mean, that's, that's everything. That's everything. It is indeed everything. One aspect that's been incredibly gratifying about that project is that since it was first exhibited in 2000, and I believe it was 2018, um, descendants of the women have contacted me. And that is how, yes, that's how I am learning the stories of these women. And that body of work is going to the Montgomery Museum of Fine Art in April of 2022. All of the mugshots will be gathered there. And the title of that exhibition is Homecoming. And there will also be two additional bodies of work, one looking back and seeing now, which is a group of portraits of my maternal ancestors, and then a new body of work that I'm creating now. How exciting. Oh, I have chills. That's wonderful. Do you find, I mean, I wonder if there are more mugshots that to be uncovered. I mean, I imagine there are so many unsung heroes during that time. Like, I wonder if that work will continue to evolve and keep coming to you. Is it something you will be adding to? I, yes, yes. As with other projects of mine, they tend to be like continual works and processes. Since, since 2018, I've discovered more mugshots from that specific in, event. Uh, these women were arrested when a grand jury indictment came down to arrest the leaders of the Montgomery bus boycott for breaking Alabama's anti-boycott laws. Since that time, there were other acts of resistance and other times when civil rights activists were arrested. But this particular time, which was February of 1956, I've been able to find only 14 women. And I don't really know if there are other women that are associated with that particular arrest. But during the course of the civil rights movement, there have been many arrests and many, many mugshots photographed from that era. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting. I mean, where do you even begin researching? I imagine you kind of uncovering, I mean, you can probably go down such a deep rabbit hole. 
Well, for these mugshots, I went to the Montgomery archives and they were really instrumental in getting me high resolution images. But, you know, if you Google a civil rights movement and mugshots, you'll see perhaps hundreds of images of young women and men who were arrested during that era. I know it's just a, it's such a brilliant project. It's kind of, I imagine it could potentially become all consuming. Well, I've spent a good amount of time on it. I worked on it. I started working on it shortly after President Trump was elected. And I worked on it for a period of two years. I was able to spend a concentrated period of time on it when I was an artist in residence at Headland Center for the Arts. And that was really a godsend. Um, and then that work was first exhibited in 2018. So um, my process is very slow and laborious. Um, if you see those drawings in person, you can see the accumulation of literally thousands of lines. And that's really speaking to uh, the labor of these women. I wanted to choose a technique and material to talk about the labor, but also to talk about the history and the ease with which that history can be erased if it isn't first uncovered and second, if it isn't preserved. So when I approach a project, I think uh, I'm very intentional about the materials that I choose, the techniques that I choose. Oftentimes I don't make decisions about that until I'm deep into the research to decide what would be most appropriate for that particular project, because this is, it is an open-ended project. Yeah, it really is. And there's something that's so beautiful about, you know, these stories are not forgotten. They are actually really cared for and thoughtfully brought through your laborious process, um, you know, where these women deserve that time and that care and that recognition. Thank you. The time that I spend with them also allows me to get to know them in a way. It's a, it's a very strange experience because I didn't know, and still don't for many of them, know their life stories. But in the process of revealing their person, in the process of rendering their faces, in the process of drawing their eyes, in the process of really understanding the emotions that they're conveying at that moment in time with their, when they are being criminalized for standing, for standing up for justice, just taking that into my own psyche, into my own body, but then revealing them through the act of drawing by my hand, it requires time. It really does. It re requires that labor and that project in particular has been a labor of love. I mean, it's such an emotional project. How do you protect yourself? What do you do to take care of yourself? There's always a balance, but I love working. <laughs> I'm happiest. I'm happiest when I'm in the studio. And I've always aspired to create work that is meaningful and important. And that speaks to Black women's contributions, not only contributions to history, but our labor in changing the course of history, our labor in bringing justice forward, 
our labor and making this world a more equitable place. So visibilizing that labor, it's a profound responsibility, but I'm happiest when I'm working. So I do, of course, have to live in the real world. I can't spend all of my time in the studio. I have a family and other responsibilities. <laughs> but working working really feeds me. And I just feel incredibly grateful that I found uh, as a child the thing that I was really good at. You know, some people go through their entire lives never discovering the thing that they were put on this planet to do. And I feel like I connected with that at a very early age. So working, I don't think of my work as something that is a tiring or something that expends too much energy. Oftentimes it's the administrative, it's everything outside of the studio, you know, it's everything outside of the studio that is still related to the work, related to the business and the profession of being an artist. That's the thing that's exhausting. But being in the studio is, is uh, it's really a, a regenerative activity for me. But I love the idea of during this Trump fiasco of those two years, you were in the headlands paying tribute to these incredibly strong civil rights leaders. I mean, there's just such a beautiful sort of um, apropos, you know, there's just something that's so, I mean, I, that to me, that feels really empowering. You're actually caring for what's important and you're, it's beautiful. That really is the catalyst for the work because with all of my work, my goals are to create work that empower, that highlight our resilience in the face of oppression, in the face of racism, in the face of misogyny, to remind us that we each have power to affect change. I love it. I, and I absolutely understand. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of beyond this earth. It's beyond our language. It's beyond... Absolutely. So why is public art important to you? Public art is important because it has the power to shape history. When you think about Confederate monuments that were created during the height of Jim Crow laws and torture, those monuments were funded primarily by the United Daughters of the Confederacy. And they were created to reshape the narrative of history away from a war fought to preserve the institution of human enslavement and torture, but to rewrite that narrative to preserve Southern heritage, to preserve this idea of states' rights, and those monuments were placed in public squares. They were placed in prominent places so that the history around the reason why this, the Civil War was fought could be reshaped by white supremacists. So monuments have the power to shape history and to educate the public about what that history 
would be. And so it's extremely important when we think about monuments in 2021 and the power that they have and the the power of the stories that they tell, that we really have a responsibility to tell the truth about the history and to create a counterpoint, to create a remedy to those monuments to violence and white supremacy. And so in my mind, public monuments, public art, the way that we now choose to mark the landscape, the way that we choose to tell those stories and shape that history, it has to include the full truth about the founding of this this country and also the contributions and representations of people who have been erased from history. Well said. I think that is the boil down what this podcast is meant to convey. So beautifully said. Thank you for that. Absolutely. Um, And you mentioned earlier you were a bookworm. And so I imagine you love Maya Angelou. And so I would love to talk about the process of creating a monument to Maya Angelou. Maya Angelou has been a shero of mine since junior high school. When I first read, I know why the caged bird sings. So the opportunity to create a monument to honor her is incredible. Uh, The first thing that I did was to research what the city wanted. So the legislation that created that commission has statue crossed out and artwork written in its place. The request for qualifications specifies an artist that excels in portraiture. So I thought, oh, this is an opportunity for me to extend my portrait practice, my drawing practice in a way that I haven't before. I looked very closely at Maya Angelou's own art collection and the artists that she loved. So Elizabeth Catlett's representations of women were really central to her art collection. And Elizabeth Catlett is one of the artists that I admire quite a bit. I reread all of Maya Angelou's works. I looked at every representation of her that I could find. I looked at not only every representation of her in terms of photography, but also public representations of her, murals, other monuments to her, um, statues that have been had been created of her. And then looking at her life, I was very intentional about making sure that the way that I represented her was really rooted in her own principles, how she defined herself, uh, the way that she thought about aesthetics as I understood them. I also looked at any number of um, interviews and there was a 1973 interview of her with Bill Moyers that actually took place when she lived in Berkeley for a short time, and not very many people know about that. And so the theme of that interview was the nobility of the Black woman. And there were questions that Bill Moyers asked her that really resonated with me. He asked her about freedom, because by that time, she had achieved so much. She was 
uh, an activist, a friend of, had been a friend of Martin Luther King, a friend of Malcolm X. She had performed on stages around the world. She was a renowned writer and poet. She was the first Black woman to direct a Hollywood movie. I mean, go on and on and on her achievements, just incredible, amazing. And so he asked her, how did she come to this this place of freedom where she could live her life so expansively. And she said that freedom had rewards, but it came at a great price. And I'm paraphrasing. And she also said that freedom means that you belong no place and you belong every place. So this idea of not really belonging to a region, but having belonging to humanity in the world, that was um, something that really struck me. And then he asked her, who do you belong to? And she said, I belong to myself. Now that's profound. She went on to describe how if she did something that she didn't like, that she had to answer to herself. So this idea of self-accountability was really important. And then the ideals that she embodied, she spoke about courage and courage being the most important virtue that one could possess because it allowed all the other virtues to be expressed. She talked about her love of justice and the desire for justice, but also the risk of pursuing justice. Oftentimes when you're fighting for justice, you are speaking truth to power. There's a quote by Frederick Douglass, power concedes nothing without demands. This pursuit of justice is always within the context of power, who has power. The monument is in the form of a book with a portrait of her on the front that's based on a drawing of mine with a quote of hers on the base and that base will be in granite. And then another quote of hers on the back of the book. Now bronze has long been a material of monuments for its permanence, for these ideas of conquest and Confederate monuments are all made of bronze. But my use of the material is really going back to the Benin bronze plaques of West Africa by the Edo peoples, which was uh, used before Africans in that area had any contact with Europeans. So it's a material that's indigenous to that area. And it was so it was really important for me to use it for that reason. And the book form, I mean, okay, it's sitting in front of the library, but it also references the rectangular plaques of the Benin bronzes. So it was important for me to reference that form. Also, it references uh, a monument by Elizabeth Catlett to Ralph Ellison, which is a rectangular monument that stands in Harlem. So I was very intentional about the form that I wanted. I was very intentional about the ideas that I wanted the um, piece to convey, if not explicitly um, at the very least, that those are the ideas that I was thinking about when I designed the monument.
Thank you for sharing. I mean, I didn't know all of these layers. It's really so thoughtful and and it's such a beautiful piece because I love Maya Angelou and the book is wonderful and seeing it in front of the library and all these things. But, you know, thank you for that deeper um, explanation. It's really incredible. You know, and I'm so glad that we're here and you can explain the intent behind it and this deep thought that went into these multiple layers. So you were asked to create a piece, you dove in deep and, and expanded. I mean, I would say you've sort of stretched the rubber band of your artistic practice uh, without breaking it <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and really created a brilliant, thoughtful piece. And so you bring the proposal back to the city and what, what happens or what is the roller coaster? What is the story? I'll just say this. Right now, I'm in a new chapter with this piece. And anyone who wants to read about the history and read about the fiasco and read the story of how this whole process unfolded, there's plenty of press. For me, I've moved on from that. It's very important now entering into the creative phase of that process to, to focus on getting the monument fabricated, making sure that it carries forward the integrity of the design when it's erected. It's, it's so powerful. Even the process is a tribute to her, is an honor to her. I mean, this is so incredibly thoughtful and beautiful. I know she's applauding you wherever she is. She's, <laughs> and that we, you know, the, that you fought to make it happen too. And you stood your ground. I mean, it's all so important. I think people will be crying. I mean, it'll be such an emotional day, the day that it is revealed in front of the library. It'll I'll be crying. That's for certain. <laughs> And you're going to have so many people surrounding you applauding. You know, it is justice being served. It is yes. such a beautiful piece. You know, I also have to say that I didn't do this by myself. It took an entire community. It took disparate communities coming together to support me. But I didn't do this for myself only. It was for other artists as well. So this monument will really speak to the enduring legacy of Maya Angelou and how she brought communities together, how she brought people together. You know, and it's such a change in our shifting culture because you are a contemporary artist making a beautiful piece, a tribute piece, very different than the Confederate figurative statues that have existed in our public art space. And so it's not only a shift of who we're acknowledging, who we're paying tribute to, it's a shift in what we're looking at, what we're feeling, what, what public art can be. And it's such a creative, beautiful process that you're sharing with us. We really need to think long and hard about our expectations of what public art should look like, because so much of public preferences for what monuments should look like have been shaped by monuments to white supremacy. The neoclassical ideal has ruled monument design in this country for centuries. And so the public learns that that is what a monument should look like. That's how monuments should be, that's a proper monument. That's what we've been taught over decades and decades. There's never been an alternative or there's not many alternatives, if any. Well, it's time. 
for a new alternative. And it's time to think about monuments that are rooted in cultures that are not part of this neoclassical ideal. It's important for us to expand our vision about what a monument can look like and what a monument can say and what a monument can do. From Jill Christina Vest to the Dr. Huey P. Newton Foundation, Dana King to Susan Cervantes to Catherine Wagner, Sea Black Women and Lava Thomas, thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your stories with us. This entire season has been about pushing boundaries, reframing narratives, and making history around some of the most important issues of our time. Public art is part of our cultural history part of the evolution of our society and builds our collective memory. It explores and reveals our city and adds meaning to our everyday lives by engaging in conversations with Bay Area artists, thought leaders, and organizers. Local Voices reaffirms the importance of storytelling as a tool for connection, learning, and social change. Thank you so much to Maria, Renee, Courtney, and the rest of the incredibly talented Fine Arts Museum's team for the teamwork and dedication to this project. Thank you so, so much to the Supervillain team for being incredible producers, editors, and audio wizards, incredible collaborators. Most importantly, thank you to all of our incredible speakers for sharing your stories and continuing to make the Bay Area a more beautiful and thoughtful place. We love you. <laughs>